0: G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back
1: and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au.
2: T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number tp slash 01005. On
0: 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
2: Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. My guest in this episode is a born and raised West Australian. In fact, he was our Western Australian of the Year several years ago. Uh, He's supported the community as a medical practitioner, researcher, trainer, uh, a volunteer uh, in other parts of the world as well as uh, here in Western Australia and uh, perhaps is, um, well, maybe most well-known as being uh, the lead of the fathering project team at the University of Western Australia. So it's with great pleasure I say hello and welcome to Inspiring Stories, Dr Bruce Robinson. How are you, Bruce?
1: Good, thanks, mate. Uh, Thanks for inviting me on.
2: Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Let's just address uh, the the elephant in the room, the crisis that's uh, gripping the world at the moment. Uh, I ask this because uh, I know that... uh, uh, you are still quite uh, involved in uh, in delivering medical services to the people of of Perth. Um, has the uh, has the COVID nineteen crisis uh, enveloped your working life as well?
1: It's enveloped out of heart, I'm a lung specialist, so of mm. course we're the front line of this when people get sick. Um, so probably barely an hour goes by when I don't get some kind of <clears throat> some kind of email or call or something about our plans and strategies. Yep, um, it's um, impacting me a, a bit, uh, a fair bit, I guess, but I, I'm not really at the front line. We've got younger doctors who are looking after the patients and that's because their risk is lower. You know, if you're under 50, for example, you, you're a lot safer if you're going to get COVID-19 yourself. So they've, they're sort of out there, the front line troops on all of this. Yeah. But no, but w- what happens is that then you've got more work to do on the other side of people are getting pneumonia and asthma and that sort of thing. So that's where I'll be busier.
2: Yeah, I bet. Um, Everyone's an expert at the moment, aren't they? Everyone's uh, a medical expert and a conspiracy theorist uh, expert, all kinds of experts that would seem out there. Um, Are you finding yourself having to constantly correct people about what is fact and what's myth?
1: Not really, but I am spending a lot of time encouraging people to take it seriously, and I have been for some weeks. I mean, not just my patients, but my friends who maybe weren't being as careful as they should have been. Um, and so I've been, and my family too, and my kids, I've been making sure that they're on track. Yeah. Um, you know, they've got little kids themselves. And, um, yeah, I mean, I knew, obviously, a long time ago how serious this was going to be because I was getting the information coming in from WHO. Um, yep. So, you know, this is... And to be fair, I mean, people, sure, they're talking about a lot and they're worried about it, but they are worried. I mean, this is a... Oh, Absolutely this is a catastrophe, you yeah. know, people are going to die, people people are going to be um, losing their jobs, and however, I do believe that every um, situation like this is an opportunity, so for example, the old people in the homes who can't be visited by their children and grandchildren, you know, they're, uh, they're being given things like iPads and mobile phones so they can FaceTime, and they may actually end up with more mm. human contact, if you like, not sorry, more verbal contact. Sure. Community groups are uh, organising to um, talk to people, particularly people who are lonely and, you know, like churches, et cetera, to ring people up and just, you know, old people and say, hi, my name's Tom, Dick or Harriet and, you know, if yeah. they volunteer and then uh, ask them about their life, where they grew up and, I don't know, there's all sorts of ways in which every one of these Catastrophes is has some good that can come out of it and that, there's some examples.
2: Yeah, let's hope so. Look, one of the things that people do talk about is, um, you know, it, it puts people in a position where they are going to be spending more time uh, with their loved ones, uh, parents with their kids, for instance, it's an opportunity uh, to spend more time working on that strong family unit, which I suppose goes to the heart of, of, of what you've been doing with the fathering project now uh, for some years, doesn't it?
1: It does. I mean, it is a bit of an irony that certainly dads or mums who are too busy uh, overworking will uh, actually have to spend some time with their kids and learn how to be creative. And in fact, in the process, which is what we find with the Fathering Project, enjoy it. One of the mm. things we've found is that dads come to one of our sessions at a school on fathering, we give them some ideas and they go home and they think, oh, I should do that because they said I should. And then they do it and then they realise just how much fun it is and then they wouldn't change it for kids.
3: Yeah. It'll be
2: the same here. uh, I mean, yeah, look, it doesn't really matter how you get there, does it? But uh, a lot of people might find themselves almost forced into that environment now. Um, So, yeah, Yeah. one of the great things that could come from it. Can you tell me, where did this whole idea for the fathering projects come from and why was it so important for you personally, Bruce?
1: It was a bit of an accident to start with. Uh, I I really arose out of... um, me talking to men in my clinic and having to break the bad news they're going to die and then sitting there telling me gee you know it's terrible i wish i'd spent more time with my kids i can't get that time back again and after hearing that a number of times i got really frustrated um so i just i wrote a book about busy dads and ideas that i accumulated from other men uh, on how to work around a busy lifestyle and still be a good dad and that's i thought would be the end of it um but then it became a bestseller and then we started a research project on the role of having a good dad or father figure and drug addiction and then we got a grant and I don't know it just got transformed into the fathering project and now it's being rolled out across every school in the country every primary school in the country that's the goal
2: that's uh, that's incredible uh, and it seems like such a a simple and obvious principle doesn't it
1: I think uh, probably 200 years ago, you didn't need a fathering project because dads were still pretty involved with the kids, you know, mostly on farms and, you know, did the ploughing with them when they were there on the farm and spent time with kids. Kids had grandfathers and uncles around, so, you know, that kind of father figure role was shared pretty broadly, but now uh, life has changed, so... Caught us by surprise, I think. And so kids really, really, really change if they have strong input from a dad or a father figure, you know, in terms of how they feel about themselves, their risk of being a drug addict, their risk of being a bully at school, their attitude to learning, attitude to values, you know, loss of values today. So much of it comes from lack of input from dads. Mm. And also... Their sense of themselves too, you know, teenage depression, that sort of stuff. And having a strong dad or father figure is so powerful in changing the future of kids.
2: How would you describe your own style as a dad, Bruce? As I'm guessing uh, as someone who's dedicated a large part of your life to becoming a, a medical practitioner, that is a time-consuming uh, occupation and vocation that you've chosen there. Um, how did you balance all that with being a dad? Because I know you've got, uh, you've got three kids, haven't you have got you?
1: Yeah. Um, I guess uh, some good and bad, really. I mean, I think I kind of um, did plenty of things with my kids. always took them camping and kicked a footy with them and, you know, didn't miss their important things. Um, but also, um, I probably was away a fair bit in my... Oh, it wasn't. I no, not probably. I was away a fair bit. When I was young, you know, you go overseas to conferences and I do a lot of research, so you've got to travel a lot. And... But I think, like I said before, every problem is an opportunity. So one day, I got home from a trip and I thought, this is ridiculous, I can't be away from my kids this this much. So I started taking them with me one at a time on trips.
3: Yeah, Again, right.
1: as I said, I did it because I should. Mm. And I thought, I'll do this because it sounds like a good idea. I mean... You know, I should do this. Boy, it was fun. It was absolutely fun. And my kids, now three of them, have gone around the world with their dad. The trip lasted a month, each of them, and done other trips with me as well. But that was sort of the first thing, um, this conference trip. And, boy, they remember every single second of it. Yeah, um, bet. And the fact that, you know, I'm busy and yet I bother to spend time with them, that makes them feel so special and worthwhile. And, mm. boy, did I love it. In fact, the last day, the last night, of my last kid's trip i was in paris with my daughter i i sat on a balcony and i suddenly realized it was the last of these one month trips when they're nine or ten and i started to cry it was such a, such a joy yeah anyway so that's an example of things i did badly but you know i managed to sort of turn it around a bit
2: mm. are they still trying to tag along on your work trips bruce <laughs> no we're married with our own
1: kids now but they like doing <laughs> footy trips and things and and we've uh, my wife and I have got you know, we we take each of the kids now with their own kids off on a holiday somewhere with us. Yeah. the whole lot of us. Mm. Um, the other thing that you know, I was always busy, so I tried to create dad dates. You know, where you go out for a, a movie or whatever, have a meal with your kids, and one at a time. The key thing is one at a time. And I still do that. In fact, I now have a, a do it with my kids in law, you know, like without my kids there, with my kids in law, we go out together and get to know them a bit. And I still, no, I still love spending one on one time with the kids. Oh, they're such a joy. And I guess I've been doing it now the whole of their lives. So I'd miss it if I couldn't.
2: Yeah. Going back even further, Bruce, what was your own childhood like in your relationship with your parents back then?
1: Yeah, I think I was a probably... I'm a real um, typical Aussie kid, really. I grew up in Bassendine. Dad was a clerk in a factory. I spent my whole time with all my mates swimming in the river, riding bikes, playing cricket and footy. Yep. You know, um, just a pretty, you know, working-class kid. And had no TV, obviously. Uh, even when TVs came out, we couldn't afford one. And Yeah, you know, I know, I just had a typical childhood of mucking around, making stuff and... Mm. Um, my dad I would say looking back now that I know what a good dad is and what a good dad is not uh, he was pretty good He, um, a few things I remember that were, really were ahead of his time one is he used to take us all out camping all the time sometimes on a Friday just say let's go out camping and we all just jump in the FJ Holden and go camping, sleep under the stars, catch jilgies in the creek yeah. I think my mum used to worry sometimes but you know we always did camping things and he taught us how to be good bushies. Yeah. The other thing my dad did, which is ahead of his time, was uh, birds and bees. You know, really talked directly to me and my son, my brother in particular. You know, he'd really talked directly about the birds and bees. He thought it was terrible yeah, right. to let kids loose in the yeah. world, and it was always embarrassing. Yeah. But, but, you know, it was so. And even today, I find that dads really struggle to talk with their sons about the birds and bees, let well, oh, alone their totally. daughters. Yeah. 99% oh. of dads will not talk to their daughters about, you know, the father daughter sex talk. So, you know, yeah. my dad was ahead of his time, mm. uh, really. And, uh, you know, and I honour him for that. He had his own problems, to be honest. He was chain smoker and drank a fair bit at various times. But well, actually, the other thing I'll, I'll say about my dad he was a real citizen. You know, he was deputy mayor and president of the RSL. And his attitude to life, which he passed on to us, you don't measure life by what you get, and you know, power, success. You measure life by whether you make the world a better place or not. Yep. That's how you measure life. Mm. And he instilled that in us. And, you know, I think that's very clearly uh, what, what his kids have done in life as well.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, and, Bruce, uh, from that, I'm curious to hear what uh, then led you down the path of, of medicine and, and giving back uh, to the community uh, through that. So uh, we'll get into that after the break, but uh, we do need to take a, a brief pause. Dr Bruce sure. Robertson is our special guest. This is WA's Inspiring Stories on 882 6 BR. Back with more soon.
0: You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is inspiring stories with Tim McMillan on eight eighty two six PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to inspiring stories. Dr. Bruce Robinson is
2: our special guest. Uh, Bruce, from your childhood, do you remember a time when you really felt uh, an attraction towards medicine as a, as a career path? Was there a moment, or you know, where you thought, yes? this is what I want to do, was it just a, a gradual progression towards it?
1: I can tell you exactly the moment. Okay. I was in year 12, and yep. I love physics, you know, and physics and cosmology, and that's what I wanted to do at university.
2: To do, with a view but to being a, a physicist? Correct. Mm.
1: But the reason I switched to medicine is quite simple. I'm a 17-year-old kid. I go in, have a cup of tea, watch the watching TV with mum and dad for a break, and I watched Dr. Kildare, who was one of the medical shows at the time.
3: Yeah.
1: And the thing I noticed was all these beautiful nurses that swooned <laughs> as he sort of came around. And I thought, oh, I bet that doesn't happen in physics. And so I went out to my study and thought, I'm going to see how pathetic. I mean, I'm a 17-year-old kid. <laughs> and I thought, that's got to be better than um, physics. <laughs> However, deep down, I'll tell you one thing. My dad was a medic in the Navy. Right. During the Second World War. Okay. He had a few uh, medical books and stuff on the shelf. And never once did he lean on me to be a doctor. Never mm. once. He, he and Mum always said, because I was pretty good at school, you just, you do what you want to do. Same with my brother. You do what you want to do. We we're not telling you what to do. They weren't looking for that sort of reflected glory. And Dad, if anyone could have done that awful thing where kids become your bragging rights, you know, you do medicine for their sake sort of thing. But no... Yep. And I admire them for that. Uh, but no, um, the, the trigger was the Dr. Kildare, the pretty <laughs> nurses and stuff. But uh, I think deep down I always had a bit of a sense of, you know, a sense of medicine and mm. serving people in that way.
2: What was it about um, pursuing physics that particularly interested you?
1: Does- no, I just, ever since I was at school, I've just always loved mathematics and physics and, you know, been pretty okay at it and, mm. I still love physics. I still love reading about the uh, the cosmos and quantum cosmology and Stephen Hawking's type things. And mm. I don't know but it is. It's just what you're interested in, I yeah. guess. Although, I'm, to be honest, I'm one of these people driven by curiosity who's interested in pretty much everything.
2: Yeah. Um, and, of course, no nurses in the physics labs. <laughs>
1: Or out uh, the,
2: the giant telescope. So that was important too. Thank goodness for those birds and bees talks uh, from your dad uh, again.
1: <laughs> exactly. you <laughs> are on to me. <laughs>
2: and your early days at university, uh, you know, it is a culture shock for anyone when they leave school and, and enter into university life. Uh, was it a big transition for you?
1: Yes and no. So I was a working class kid who basically never, you know, lived in that kind of. World. Yep. And uh, when I went to university, I knew nobody. But I tell you what, I've always loved footy. Yep. I've always played footy in a team. And I joined the university football club at UWA. And really, within a few weeks, I knew, I felt like I knew half the people on campus. And they are still my friends. And yep. I played there for about eight years, coached for six years. And, you know, it's a whole family, the university footy club. And So pretty quickly, even though I was a working class kid from Bassendine who'd never been into that area of the city, pretty soon I felt comfortable and and I loved uh, the study too. You know, I've always loved studying medicine, I still do. Um, Medicine has been a real friend to me in my life. It's given me a a profession that's just lovely to learn about, really interesting to learn about the human body, how it works. Mm. You know, COVID virus, coronavirus, how does it get into the body and what does it do? it's given me a chance to have a profession where I can help people one on one directly mm. you know I can reach out to them and and you know just help them it's given me and it's of course it's paid pretty well given me pretty good job security i mean right now if you run a pub or a restaurant travel agency you're in yeah, trouble you're in strife. medicine mm. medicine you know it's just you always need doctors so it's secure and no it's been a joy and of course i've done a lot of medical research which is another joy as well the excitement of what I call the Captain Cook feeling. You know, you must have woken up every morning and think, what am I going to discover in the Pacific Ocean today? Mm. And uh, it's the same here. You're just always pushing the envelope of knowledge and discovering things. And um, so that's also part of my job, and it's done me a favor like that.
2: Yeah. You mentioned before when you were talking about your inspiration to, to start the fathering project about having to um, face um, those moments with you know with dads who reflect on their life uh you know when their life is slipping away Mm -hmm. talking about their regrets but when you are in that moment with a well with anyone that you're treating whether they're a dad or not is that the toughest part of your job having to deliver that bad news to someone
1: yeah that's a great question i mean imagine it was you yeah but i was talking to how you would feel yeah well it used to be And a lot of doctors have sort of avoided that situation because it's really, it is the most intimate moment a doctor can have with a patient. Yeah. The most powerful, emotionally loaded, intimate moment. Mm. But um, when I realized I didn't really feel comfortable about it, I did a lot of research to work out what is the best practice at doing this. And I've now done it hundreds of times and what from the patients what works well and what doesn't. Yep. In fact, I was in charge for 25 years of the course on teaching medical students how to do that in the end. So now I actually, to be honest, this sounds a bit weird, I actually find it a privilege and an honour to be there at that moment mm. and I guess to walk the journey because I never then abandon, I don't handball them on to just oncology and what have you. I, I stay with them and do the journey till they die and help them to think about how they're talking to their kids and each other and, what are they afraid of and, you know, all those things. And I, I, I walked that journey with them and it is an honour and a privilege. And, poor gee, I've learned a lot about human life through doing that.
2: Yep, yep. And I suppose you, uh, you, you're getting people in their most uh, raw and, and open moment, aren't you?
1: Yeah. I was discussing this the other day. Someone said, you don't tend to... I have lots of friends all over the place in Perth, but people notice that I don't really care if they're if they are rich, famous or powerful, you know, any of those things that, you know, other people might... I, they say, you don't seem to pay any attention to it. And I say, yeah, that's because we just don't care. They're a human being. And when you've sat in the room with with people who are reduced to their most basic, where they live in their heart, nothing else matters. And so, you know... Uh, I honestly I honestly don't care how rich and famous and powerful people are, and I think people appreciate it because I don't even...
3: Yeah,
2: holds no currency for and you. The Prime Minister,
1: mm. if I was sitting at a test match and the Prime Minister said, next year, I don't even know the guy, but if he, if I said to him, oh, how are you going, mate? He said, oh, you know, we got this budget thing. I'd say, mate, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your kids and you and how you're going, being away from home and yeah. getting a battering from the media. How are you going, buddy? And thanks for working so hard for us. Mm. Yeah, yep. I only care about those things. So I think it's because of really sitting there in the in the room and having people essentially emotionally naked mm. sitting in front of me. Yeah, and sometimes, honestly, sometimes I cry as well when I give them bad news. I bet, especially if they're young with young kids.
2: Yeah, it's uh, well, it's it's not something that uh, that many people would cope with having to do that uh, over many years. I imagine. Um, so well, I, I think, suppose they're um, they're lucky to have someone with uh, with your compassion and insight to, to be there in that moment.
1: I think there's plenty of doctors who are like that. I mean, yeah. once you learn how to do it, mm. you learn not to take it on to yourself, you don't take it home. And you learn to consider it, I guess, a bit of an honor. So
3: yeah,
1: and there's, there's lots of doctors who um, have learned how to do it and, uh, and I think do a good job of it. Um, and I guess some not so, and probably you know anyone's listening will probably you know, have an experience of this one way or another. Mm. And we'll know things that happened badly and things that happened well. Um, yeah. I
2: wanted to ask you as well, um, Bruce, about your work in the field of asbestos-related illness. Um, just uh, in case people aren't aware, you know, you were in, heavily involved in, in developing that—that uh, that, what was a world first blood test for diagnosis of, of mesothelioma. H- how did that come into your your work life? I, I mean, obviously, WA, unfortunately, is a is a real hotspot for asbestos-related illness, isn't it? But uh, how did you become so intimately involved with it?
1: Well, that's a great question. Another accident in my life. Mm. I went to the United States for three years to do a doctorate, came back pretty skilled up in you know uh, laboratory research at that point. Yep. But I was studying things like asthma. Yep. And one of my uh, colleagues came in and he sat in my office and said, look, we've got people starting to die of mesothelioma. A tsunami is hitting us, and we've got nothing to offer them, nothing at all, because nothing works. Can't you use all that stuff you've learnt in America and apply it to mesothelioma? And I thought, absolutely, why should, Why can't I? So I went out and I tried to find some cell lines around the world. There were none. We had to start that whole off. then we tried to do this and that. And everything in that field, we had to start ourselves. So we started off and um, built up a terrific team, <clears throat> And then, yeah, in the end, we became the world leaders in this. Not me, but, you know, I just happen to be part of it now, just the world leaders in this disease. And, you know, finding the first blood test for mesothelioma, the first chemotherapy that was effective. You know, we, with therapy, when we started off, our first effective treatment, we got about 12% of patients responded. Yep. Which is better than nothing, but it's 12%. We're up to about 40 or 45% of patients respond now. So... All of this, uh, you know, and lots of lots of things that we've discovered. Um, and it's been, uh, I mean, all, all that happened wasn't that my friend walked in and put the challenge to me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we had what it took and then challenge we accepted. had the patients. <laughs> but the technology and all that stuff is one thing. I mean, I, I've now looked after hundreds and hundreds of victims of asbestos disease. Gee, they're heroes, you know. Yeah. I, they are really you know they they haven 't like smoked and got lung cancer where they 've kind of taken a risk and they accept it they haven 't got drunk and driven their car into a tree and become you know paraplegic where they say oh well that 's my fault they 've just gone to work and you know to feed their family and breathe in something that 's going to kill them I mean they are real heroes you know yeah, and yeah. i i I consider that a privilege too to have gotten to know them so well over the years,
2: yeah. Uh, and such a a tragic story, um, and like you said, you, we've had some real heroes emerge from it. But unfortunately, um, we're now in the grips of of a third wave coming through, aren't we? Not you know not necessarily the the James Hardy whitney cases, but we're getting a, a new wave of of younger people suffering this shocking illness uh, right now, aren't we?
1: Yeah. So you got the home renovators yeah. and people like that. Yep.
2: Yep. Um, yep exactly so, and and their outcomes compared to when you first became involved uh, in this kind of research they are thankfully better but it is still uh but i think it, it seems to be an underappreciated um killer still in australia doesn't it Uh, yeah
1: well their outcomes are better but we still haven't cured the disease mm. i mean a live longer but you know, we haven't cured the disease so, yep. so yeah yeah probably suppose... still a bit underappreciated i mean it's you know, there's things like breast cancer, which is common, and also it's mums who get it yeah. right. So that's much more kind of topical than, let's say, uh, an immigrant worker at Whitman who gets mesothelioma. But I think Australians are pretty aware of it. I mean, they're yeah. pretty scared of asbestos. So,
2: I suppose you could, know, when mostly. you when you think of the, the, the number of people that are killed on our roads and the efforts that go into the public health campaigns uh, to warn people about that, which are entirely valid, don't get me wrong... Um, but am I right in thinking that uh, asbestos-related uh, conditions still take more lives than car accidents in Australia, still to this day?
1: Um, I don't know the exact figures, but you know, there's plenty of warnings about asbestos now. and yep. um, I think people are aware of it. I mean, the main thing is to invest in research, really. I mean, mm. we've got to cure this disease. I think that's what we want to do.
3: Yep,
2: absolutely. Well, at
1: least we can't cure everyone, probably, but no. you know, we want to say to someone, look, we can cure half of you, with this treatment you know something that's really clever and some combination of things that'll well it's yep. the same with all cancers really i mean we haven't cured most of the advanced once cancer spread you know whether it's lung breast bowel prostate whatever we haven't really done that well so yeah you know we're working on some new a new cancer vaccine all aimed at trying to you know find some cures for these terrible terrible diseases
2: You've got your work cut out for you, Bruce, but we'll give you a break just for a couple of moments while we do take a break here on Inspiring Stories, uh, and we'll be back with you right after that. This is
0: Inspiring Stories
2: 882 6 br. Back with more in a moment.
0: You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6 br brought to you by Barra and O'Day, because the little things are everything.
2: Welcome back to Inspiring Stories, uh, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. We're hearing the story of Dr. Bruce Robinson, who was our Western Australian of the Year uh, in 2013 and has a lot of other Uh, titles and accolades that have been awarded to him over the years uh, as well Uh, he's a a member of the uh, order of australia uh, and uh, and several others um, particularly in in the field of medicine Uh, bruce i wanted to ask you about uh, going back to 2004 or so uh, i think the world watched in horror when the tsunami hits uh, indonesia and and surrounding parts how did you respond when you first saw that because Yeah, I mentioned just before the break that you spent some some time over there. When you first saw that, do you remember what what you felt when you saw those horrific images?
1: Yeah, like everyone, I thought, gee, that's awful. And there were, I guess, the first couple of days there were, well, first week there were 3,000 dead and then 10,000 or whatever, and the numbers started to pile up, but I didn't didn't quite know. And I actually went camping with my family because it was just after Christmas. Yep and uh, you know one day though when i was in my tent down south in augusta i listened to the radio and they talked about all the kids who'd become orphans because they could swim but their parents couldn't grandparents etc and there were like 60 I don't know, 60,000 or something you know, some terrible number i just wept mm. anyway i'm trained in medicine and i thought i looked at the ocean and i thought gee i could actually see Sumatra if the earth wasn't round Mm. You know, it's, they're our neighbours <coughs> just off the coast of WA. So I thought, if you believe in loving your neighbour, get off your bum and do something. So I basically volunteered and ended up going back five times to Archie to work as a doctor right at the coalface of this terrible disaster that end up killing a couple hundred thousand people and making about a million people homeless mm. and full of grief, etc.
3: Yeah.
2: And do you remember the scenes that confronted you when you first got there?
1: Yeah, of course, you can't forget them, really. I mean, uh, I went to um, on a small plane across the mountains to a town called Malabo, which was right next to the epicentre, and the wave rolled in, and probably the first three or four kilometres of the town was completely smashed. Yeah. Just wood and rubble. Um, and it's it's just hard to describe. Um, every time, you know, you saw the reporters, they'd say it's hard to describe this. Um And then every day, you know, we'd get up uh, and we had a tent at the hospital, a huge tent that was... um, We used to see patients, hundreds and hundreds of patients every day and flying helicopters around the place to various areas where, you know, there there was nothing left standing in some places. They were all sleeping. The ones that survived slept in Mm -hmm. UNHCR tents. And it's pretty gruelling kind of work. It's gruelling physically because, obviously not many services, and, you know, every day you're working hard. Yeah, It's very emotionally grueling, you know, that kind of stuff really, really does belt you emotionally. Mm. You know, you, you spend a bit of, bit of time on the edge of tears, to be honest. I can imagine. But you get up every morning and you, and you work, and I work with an Indonesian team mostly, and they were just the most wonderful people. Yeah. Um, they are yeah. still my friends, and I've done a number of these things. In fact, uh, 18 months ago, I was up in central Sulawesi with the same team, after the uh, tsunami and earthquake up there. Um, and uh, really exhausting, but... Um, yeah, it's exhausting, but anyway, that's what I did. And... Seeing seeing them having to, the
2: to, to cope with the resources that they have uh, in a place like that uh, and then witnessing now people, uh, you know, abusing pharmacists and people in supermarkets because they can't get hand sanitizers and painkillers and that sort of thing... How do you process all that, Bruce? Do you, do you, does some part of you want to go up and just have a word with them? A, you know, a, a stern word at no, that?
1: Not really. I've, I've learned over life just to shrug. You know, yep. I think when bad things happen, people can behave badly and they panic. I mean, when people panic, often they've got no control over it. And, you know, it's very disappointing. And, you know, I can understand why people get upset about it. I mean, the selfishness of it. Yeah. But, you know, I I learned something. When I was a young medical student, I heard a phrase about doctors because, you know, there's seven billion people in the world and there's there's sick people all the time. And this is the phrase that I heard. Better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. So when I go to Archie, I don't expect to save everybody. I just do my bit. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been really helpful. Then I don't get anxious about all the people and I'm not helping, so... Better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. So I yep. just let it all swirl around me and do my best.
2: Yep. Is it that sort of principle that gets you out of bed? That, you know, from day to day, Bruce. Even now.
1: Um. I think the idea of making a difference, as I said, you know, that's been a big issue in my life, and really, uh, I guess that's that's um, you know why you go to places like Arce, etc. You know, and when I was up there in Palu recently, this one 18 months ago, I mean, I'm very quick now. When I go to these places, I can see hundreds of patients a day. I speak the language. I speak Indonesian. I'm very familiar with what to do. I help train the young people and, you know, I really feel like I'm making a difference. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, you know, I think my medical research, everything I do really is that if I can, if someone else can do it, I don't usually bother. But if I think I can make a difference, uh, yeah. then I'll I'll get stuck into it.
2: Question without notice, when it comes to setting this example, you know, for your own kids, Bruce, um, do you worry at all that um, you're, you're almost setting setting the bar possibly high for them? You know, you've been um, someone who's devoted so much of your time to, to helping uh, people, you know, in the grips of, of trauma, whether it's in Arche or, or, or a patient in a local hospital. Um, that's a, That's a lot for a kid to see around them and then go gosh, I've got to meet that, uh, that standard as well.
1: That's always worried me, to be honest. Yeah. Um, because in my generation, yeah, everyone sort of outgunned their parents. Yeah. They did, they, you know, they went higher in academia, they earned more money, they lived in a better house. Everyone, almost everyone seemed to outgun their parents. It's not possible Yeah. Uh, for kids today. And so we always encourage them to be who they want to be. You know like um they they don't have to sort of compete against me yeah or their mum or anyone else you know they just have to be who they want to be i think with our kids um they, they're all compassionate people who care about other people and you know try to make a difference yeah they're all parents now and trying to be really good parents and good partners and all that sort of stuff and I don't really think any of them have a sense of marching to some drum. Mm. And fortunately, none of them studied medicine. I've got to say. Oh, my, that
2: was gonna, I was going to ask you know, that. Yeah, none none followed
1: that path. That's right, and I think uh, that's sort of a bit of a relief to me, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> it's a bit like playing footy. If you were, you know, if your dad was a legend playing footy or cricket, you don't really, unless your name is Smith. you know and no one knows it's kind of hard and if your name is something like lily
3: yeah you know which is
1: an unusual name it's kind of hard to not you Mm. know live in someone's shadow having said that i should i just jump in straight away and say dennis lily is someone who absolutely adores his kids and doesn't have any expectations of them and has always wanted them to be who they wanted to be
2: yeah Having said that, can understand if the kids didn't want to f- spend all day every day and then it's exactly. playing cricket as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Bruce, we need to take uh, another break. This is Inspiring Stories. Uh, we'll be back sure. with more on 882
0: 6PR after this. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring
2: Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest is Dr. Bruce Robinson. Uh, Bruce, just more on the the fathering project. How does it actually work? Do you you go out and, and organise seminars and talk to predominantly dads? Or how do you
1: actually roll out the message? The most, uh, the commonest thing we do is we go to schools because obviously there's a bunch of dads, a bit of a captive audience. Yep. We talk to them about how important dads are and dads get that quickly when you give them statistics, you know, 50% reduction in the risks that their kids will face in terms of drugs and crime and all that sort of stuff. And then uh, they form a dad's group and that dad's group then carries on, it scoops up. All the dads in the primary school, they have camp outs and they have you know, we have videos that we show them about how dads can help them with bullying and cyberbullying, and all that stuff and then they'll get to know each other as well and so we're rolling that out to all the schools in the country we also do stuff in workplaces in uh, in sports clubs, we're doing a lot with the Eagles or so the AFL coaches um, yep. and uh, that sort of stuff and I'm a patron and co-patron at Saunders 640 Club, so we're doing some stuff down there as well so that's how we do it, but pretty much it's only about two things. We tell dads how important they are because they often don't know. Yeah, I think mums are important, but they don't think they are. So we tell them that, and you know, like why they're important and what happens if they don't pull their weight. What happens to the kids? And secondly, we give them good ideas, you know, strategies, so they can, you know, and they say, okay, so I'm important, but what the hell do I do? So yeah. we tell them, you know, what works.
3: Yeah,
2: it's again, I said this before, but it seems like such a simple principle and a simple message why do you think there is such a need uh for people like you to to deliver that and to try to uh just you know get through the noise that might be buzzing around in in a bloke's head and just to remind him that he has a good role to play
1: well i think uh, firstly the reason i said before is that this kind of lifestyle has snuck up on us yeah and dad's just it's just kind of i guess i not quite sure and if you know, they don't realise how important they are, I think. And also lots of challenges now. I mean, 200 years ago, kids weren't doing drugs and getting depressed and committing suicide and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Kids had a... No, these are all, you know, the ice epidemic, all that sort of stuff. These are all fairly modern things. And so these are massive challenges, obesity and, you know, one-punch stuff and alcohol, you know, what do you call it, binge drinking Mm. So these are all things that have snuck up on us and dads are really powerful in cutting down the dangers of those things. So I think that's one reason. that Dads just haven't realised how powerful and important they are. But the second thing is, if their dad wasn't much good, how do they know how to be a good dad? So they look at us and say, OK, I'm important, but what should I do? What am I going to do that's going to make a difference? I'm busy earning money and you know trying to discipline the kids and... Watch their soccer on Saturday morning? But what do I really need to do? So we tell them the things that really, really work powerfully. Yeah.
2: I mean, can you give us an example? So there there might be a dad listening now going, well, look, I I do have a demanding job. I'm pretty time poor. Uh, I'm often stressed out with work. Uh, I don't have a huge amount of myself that I can realistically and practically give to my kid uh, at the moment. But what is one thing that they can do? They've got plenty they
1: can give. In terms of, let me just say, in terms of time, mm. Fathering Project on its website has lots of tips about how to work around a busy lifestyle. That's what you do in that time. And we have a thing called the bus strategy, BUS. What do kids really, 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 really need from their dads? B-U-N-S. B stands for being there. They need to know you're going to be there for them. You can't be there at every assembly and, You know, you just can't be there at everything, but you want to be there for them when they need it. They need to know that. You know, you'll drop everything if they're in trouble and you'll be there for them. Nothing will stop you being there for them. Secondly, you stands for unconditional love. Your love for them does not depend on their school performance, their football skills, their cricket skills, their behaviour. You know, if they're a girl, maybe the pretty girl, not the ugly girl. You know, all that sort of stuff. They need to know that your love does not depend on those things, which means they are not your bragging rights. You love them because they're just magical, wonderful, individual kids. And that's pretty hard for kids to get a sense of in this competitive world, Mm. especially when people, when parents are braggers. And the S stands for special. Make every kid feel special. And and that's one of the reasons we say dad should take the kids out on -on one-on-one dates. It makes a kid feel special that like you're busy. In fact, you know, the busier you are, ironically, the more powerful it is when you take them out for a date mm. because um, it makes them feel special. And I'll just tell you quickly one story. Uh, when John Anderson was Deputy Prime Minister, his family had to relocate back to the electorate in the country. Yep. And he, uh, his daughter stayed in Canberra at school and he took her out for a date, 16 years of age, took her out for a date. When he was at the restaurant... Uh, a, a table full of important people invited him. Now oh, come over and join us. And he said to them, "No, I'm on a date with my daughter." And she said, "It made her feel like she was worth one million dollars, mm. just yep. by him saying that I'm on a date with my daughter." Because she realized he could have spent the time with important people, but he chose to spend the time with her. And that's exactly what how to make kids feel special. Yeah, and I spoke. That's the bus strategy, and that's been a winner.
3: Yep
2: politicians great example of people who um are often seen as these role models and and, and leaders and uh and people to guide us uh, particularly at the moment you know as, as everyone's on edge with this virus pandemic um but they are people who are being pulled and stretched in all directions aren't they so um you know they're a great example aren't they of how you know with all of the pressures going on in their life they can still make time
1: well, you know, if you compare politicians to doctors,
3: yeah,
1: everyone's on the doctor's side. You know, like someone comes in sick <laughs> to my hospital, I help the nurses. We're all, we're all on the same side. You're
2: just much more it's trustworthy, people. likeable people though, Bruce.
1: <laughs> well, no, I think that's the problem is that people assume politicians are untrustworthy <laughs> and what have you. But the problem is you get elected to a seat. Half the population not only didn't choose you, but they think that you're... You're a bit of a leper anyway, because you come from the other party. I mean, you just mm. you're in an adversarial environment anyway. Yep. So anyone who's willing to fly to Canberra regularly, serve the community, and put up with all that stuff, I say thank you to them. You know, and some of them are just terrific dads. Yep, and, uh, and mums, of course. Um, some of them aren't. You know, um, and I, you know, I take my hat off to them for, for for putting their hand up in what is, to be honest, a fairly thankless job.
2: Yeah. Bruce, if you ever get bored with uh, medicine, I suspect you won't. But if you do, there's a career in politics waiting for you, I'm certain of that.
1: (laughs) I think I'd be very frustrated and a very poor politician.
2: (laughs) Stick with what you're good at. Uh, Bruce Robinson, (laughs) thank you for sharing your story with us uh, on the program. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. All the best. And to you. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA-inspiring story. WA
0: For logbook servicing you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com.